0: Hey, up Sassnacks. It's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing 605 Give Me Liberty. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander season seven, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season six, episode five, Give Me Liberty. This episode is actually one of my favorites. Of Season six, I've kind of been dying to get into the American Revolution. It's one of my favorite periods of history. Obviously, growing up in the United States, it's kind of banged into you from day one. But I absolutely love hearing all of the ins and outs. It's something that is really fascinating to me. So I was really excited to start covering it. It's something that books 7, 8, and 9 of the Outlander series actually cover. You know, we've been like, are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? And we're finally here. We're coming up on it. I thought it was funny because after the whole tar and feather scene in, later in this episode, Claire says, well, at least you didn't get shot or stabbed. And Jamie says, July 4th, 1776, he said. Well, there's still time. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Jamie. Oh, Jamie. There's always an opportunity to get her shot or stabbed in the world of Outlander, I suppose. This episode was kind of unique, especially in how it started out. I actually really liked the creative choices of this episode. In a lot of ways, it felt like typical Outlander, but then in other ways, really just the style of how things were shot, the way it was written, felt kind of unique to this episode. So I really liked that. We began this episode with a total throwback to our season two, season three days. We're back in Scotland. We pick up with Flora McDonald and Bonnie Prince Charlie. They kind of screwed the pooch with the surprise of it all in the lead up to this season because somehow, someway, Andrew Gower got put back on IMDb as appearing in season six. And everybody was like, Oh my god, what? And then he was actually at the season six premiere. So we didn't know where he was going to fit in exactly. But I thought there was a very good chance that it was going to be in the Give Me Liberty episode because I thought that maybe the Flora McDonald stuff would all get kind of thrown in with Jamie's Declaration for Independence and all the political stuff. So that ended up coming into fruition. But it was still really cool to see, to be honest, to be back in Scotland, to kind of get those vibes. We did that a couple of times this season, and it felt really good. I know that the show really focuses on Scotland as a character, and although they've never really left Scotland, it's not the same Scotland that we got to see over the course of the first three seasons, so it's always good to revisit it. The episode opens with Bonnie Prince Charlie's escape to Sky. It's something that the writers have focused on a lot they knew that they wanted to include this story at some point over the course of outlander because the skyboat song our wonderful outlander theme is actually the story of bonnie prince charlie's escape over the sea to sky there are hundreds of different renditions of it over the course of history and obviously ours was rewritten to be about the last that was gone not the lad that was gone But when we get the rendition of the Skyboat song that is on these title credits for this particular episode, A, it's in Gaelic, which really just transports us back to the time in the show when Gaelic was very heavily used and really brings us back to the Scottish Highlands of the Jacobite era. It's also sung by our fabulous vocalist, Gregor Labroid, I believe is how you pronounce his name or close to it. But he's a fabulous Gallic vocalist, and we've heard him multiple times throughout the series. He sings um, vocals throughout the episode Preston Pans and Je Suis Pré in season two. We got him singing in The Fiery Cross and in journey cake in season 5 anytime that we really want to invigorate the soundtrack of Outlander he's always there and so to bring him in to do this rendition of the skyboat song to really pull us back to the good old days It really seemed to fit, and I was very happy with it. And obviously, he also does the vocals with Raya Yarbrough for the other version of the Skyboat song that is the traditional credits for season six, only in English. And I actually really do like their duet as well. So overall, I was a big fan of the credit song choices this season. But nonetheless, the choice to create Bonnie Prince Charlie's journey to Sky Throughout the credits, and in that beginning scene with Flora, was a fabulous way to kind of introduce all of the difficulties that our characters are facing in this episode. And I really thought that it was a fabulous idea to do kind of our traditional credits format with the Skyboat song and different key images along with the title credits for all of our actors and producers and set designers and such. But it tells a story. It's not just hinting at something to come in the season or pulling out these iconic images it's very much showing what's happening from the time they push off the beach on the mainland of Scotland and land in the Isle of Skye. And the lighting is gorgeous the close ups of hands and rigging and the water hitting the rocks. It's so beautiful. Also, I just got back from Skye. Um, I visited whenever I was over in Scotland a couple of weeks ago now. And oh my gosh, it's beautiful. And it just made me yearn watching these credits today before I recorded this. I was like, oh, it's so beautiful. But overall, yeah, I really did like it. And I think it was good for us to meet Flora in her younger years doing what she's famous for throughout history so that we can really understand her journey over the course of the last 30 years. Because it is kind of a, whoa, hold up moment when you see her helping Bonnie Prince Charlie escape And then 30 years later, she's at an event as a loyalist promoting reconciliation with Mother England how did she get from point A to point B? What was her thought process? Why did she end up being a supporter of the crown? It's very intriguing. And it's something that we can kind of begin to understand who she is as a character by showing this critical moment in her history, we really get an understanding of that journey for her whenever we see the scene in the gazebo with Flora, Claire and Jocasta. She's talking about how she doesn't mean to speak ill of Charlie, but he wasn't a leader of men, which she's not saying anything that Claire doesn't already know in spades. She knows that Prince Charlie was not a leader of men and she has no clue why people would follow him. But at the same time, in history, the reason that she helped Charlie was as a favor to her family. She wasn't a Jacobite, but she wasn't a loyalist to the crown either. She didn't really have any political ties but forever in history her name is associated with bonnie prince charlie because of what she did and i find that ironic and i know it was put in there for a reason because in that having drinks and smoking with jacasta and claire she says i fear that my name will forever be linked with his And it is. And that kind of sucks. And Claire knows that whenever she she's talking to Flora. So that must be hard to think about that, that it's this romanticized notion of what actually happened. It's like Claire tells Jamie in the future, Flora's image is plastered on biscuit cans and is synonymous with a sense of Scottish rebelliousness. And that's not at all who Flora ended up being. In fact, Flora was a very staunch loyalist in the end. It's just interesting how history can kind of twist things around and how a lot of people, because she's that woman that's plastered all over biscuit tins, they don't really know much about who she was in the grand scheme of the American Revolution. So it's just interesting. When we get into the body of this episode, it's kind of um, a dual timeline. There is what's going on at the Ridge with Ree and Roger, and then there's what's going on in Wilmington with Claire and Jamie and Lord John. So I am going to kind of split it so I'm not going back and forth. So first we'll talk about what's going on at the Ridge. The big thing that's covered in this episode is Roger and Amy and their quote-unquote relationship. So, Roger has a soft spot, and I think a lot of people take that as a weakness or poor decision-making, and perhaps they're right, but when you look at the fact that Roger lost his own mother so young, he really does have that tendency to help young mothers, even at the cost of his own personal happiness or reputation. Look at helping Morag out in season four and season five and where that led him to get hung. He was turned in by Buck. And then you've got him here helping Amy. And he promised Amy with Bree's agreement that he would support her, not let her starve and help her build a cabin and deal with the upkeep on it. What he has kind of been blinded to over the course of keeping this promise is that the people on the Ridge are starting to talk because Roger is spending a lot of time with Amy. And you know how rumors get started and people like to whisper, even though it's none of their business and even though nothing's happening, they still like to talk. Bree kind of warns Roger about this. And I love their conversation because... It's a very mature conversation, and the writers were very careful about this. It's something that they talked about in the official podcast episode. They didn't want Brie to come across as bitchy or snarky or as petty and jealous. They wanted her to come across as Roger being her primary concern. It's not that she ever doubted Roger and his loyalty. She wants him to understand that what he's doing looks bad, even if he has the best intentions and even if there's nothing happening. Amy is an unwed mother of two boys and Roger spends more time at her house helping her than he does at his own house. And that just doesn't look good. And I think that Roger pushes back a little bit because he doesn't see what Bree sees. He's not seeing that judgment that's coming through. And Bree sees that from her interaction with other people, especially the other women on the ridge, like Marcely and Malva and Lizzie, they all see that from the outside. And so when they talk about it to Bree it concerns her and she sees it happening and she wants to make sure that Roger is being careful. Whenever she mentions it to Roger, he's like, nothing's happening and everybody should mind their own business. And he just wants to be helpful. He wants to feel useful. And I think that that's what's great about that conversation between him and Bree is that they're not verbally attacking each other. They're explaining why they feel the way that they do and why they're doing the things that they're doing. And Roger tells her, he says, you are amazing to me, Bree. He said, you're bringing indoor plumbing to the ridge, for goodness sake, but you don't need me the way that Amy needs me. And he said, I just want to feel useful. And how, as Bree, do you tell Roger? that he can't. (laughs) He can't do that. He can't feel useful. He can't feel like he's making a difference because that's what he wants. He's a civil servant at heart and he wants to make a difference and he wants to make people's lives better. That's what's driving him and compelling him. Amy and Aiden and Ori are recipients of that generosity at this point. It becomes difficult. It's kind of a hot-button topic because He's not spending time with them because he has a romantic fascination with Amy. And Amy doesn't have any romantic intentions toward Roger either. It's very much a respect and a friendship. And I think Amy's lonely. And that's what concerns Bree because she says, Amy needs a husband. And Roger, if you're there for her and you're taking care of everything and you're the man of the house, she's not going to feel a need to look elsewhere for that support. And that's what looks bad, that you are the man of the house in her eyes and in everyone else's. And I don't think that that really clicked with Roger until he found Malva and Obadiah in the church and Malva threatens him and says, if you tell my father that I was in here with Obadiah, I'm going to tell everyone that I saw you kissing Amy McCallum. And Roger's like, I did no such thing. And she says, but everybody will believe it. Everybody will believe me. And he knows it's true. He knows that everybody is going to believe her because Brie already mentioned this to him, warned him about it. And he kind of brushed it off. He thought that she was overreacting. And now the full force of his actions are being thrown in his face. Something that he had the best intentions is getting ready to bite him in the ass And he really sees that and he begins to regret his choice. He knows the McCallums still need support. And so that's kind of where he ropes Obadiah into kind of helping them because he's like, look, bro, you owe me one. I'm not going to tell Tom Christie that you were you know, making nice with his daughter in exchange, you're going to start taking care of the McCallums. So I think that kind of solves a lot of the problem that Roger was having. But whenever he goes to finish repairing the hearth and actually sits at the head of the table for lunch, that's when it was really like, yeah, Bree's right. She does see me as the man of the house, even though there's no like romantic intention there. That really is the role that I've taken on. So I need to figure something out. When he returns home and kind of admits to Bree, yeah, you were right. Sorry if I screwed up it's a very sweet scene because there isn't any animosity there. Brie doesn't resent Roger. Her problem with the situation was how it looked to everybody else. It's not that she ever had any trust issues with him. And so now that he's seeing what she's seeing and they're on the same page again, it's very much a coming together. This is a very different Brie and Roger from what we've had in the past. There's not these explosive fights and this nitpicking at each other and the disagreements and not getting along. They're very solid with each other and their communication is really great. And I love that evolution for them over the course of this season, because honestly, as a viewer, they're... Arguments were getting kind of old and Bree's immaturity was getting kind of old. So I'm glad that we've seen some growth from them in this season. But after everybody's all warm and cuddly and good again, Roger says the sweetest thing. He says, I want to spend my time with you and Jimmy, just the three of us. And then Bree gets this knowing smile on her face and says, well, the four of us. And Roger's reaction is so cute. Like, he's so happy. And you know, when you think about the fact that the news of Jimmy's conception and birth was so drama-filled and just treacherous ground emotionally for everybody involved, the simplicity of trying for a baby and then getting your wish, and knowing who their father is. And it's just such a sweet little tender moment between them. I'm so glad that we got to see this on screen. To top it off, we get the scene with Marsily and Brie when Marsily finds out that Brie's pregnant. And we get that sisterly love. That is one of The best things about life on the ridge, I think, are these little scenes that we get between Brie and Marsley. And honestly, one of the things I'm most sad about as far as Marsley and Fergus and the kids moving off the ridge is that we're going to lose all of these interactions between Marsley and Brie. So I was glad that we got this one last final scene with them where Marsley could share in Brianna's joy a little bit at having another baby. Okay, so that pretty much sums up The Ridge, and now I'm going to move into what's happening in Wilmington with Jamie and Claire and Jacasta and... Lord John, because it does make up the bulk of this episode, and it is a lot. I mentioned before that Flora's journey to where she is from the beginning of this episode helping Bonnie Prince Charlie escape to when we meet her again in 1775 and she's speaking as a loyalist to the crown, we're like, wait a minute, huh? What happened here? And it's the same thing that's happened to most Scots that now live in America. They saw what happened with Cumberland's scorched earth campaign with the Scottish in the Highlands. That was the whole point of basically just destroying everything that had to do with the Scottish culture and the banning of Tartans, the banning of the Gaelic language. It was also that this sense of Scottish rebelliousness would disappear, fizzle out, and that the British government and the king wouldn't have to deal with any more of this Jacobite nonsense. A lot of the Scots that now live in America at this time dealt with the Jacobite rising, and the aftermath of that rising. Jamie explains it to Claire because she also has questions as to how on earth can one get from point A to point B in this situation? Like, that's a hell of a 180. Claire says, it's strange to think of former Jacobites being so eager to join the loyalist cause. And Jamie says, they forged new lives. They have land of their own underfoot, much to lose, very little to gain. And then Claire says, if only they knew what was coming. And he replies, they will not fight for a dream, not now. Tried that before when they stood behind the Bonnie Prince, only to find themselves in prison, flogged, destitute. Most have now sworn an oath of loyalty to the king, as Flora MacDonald did, as did I. They have too much to lose at this point. They have come to America, formed a new life for themselves. A lot of the elite of Cross Creek and the Cape Fear area Own plantations and own land, and they're actually pretty wealthy. So, this particular gathering that Claire and Jamie are attending, it's really no wonder that these people are loyal to the crown. Because, why on earth would they sacrifice this life that they've built? They've already put the pieces back together once. Why would they risk it again? Jamie's kind of the same way. The only reason that he's questioning his original oath and kind of preparing to break it is because he knows the future and he knows that the rebels are actually going to win this one. And he wants to be on the winning side. Without that knowledge of the future, it does make sense that these people, these Scots are not prepared to side against the British for a second time when they saw what happened the first time. And I think that that's a struggle that, that Jamie really faces in this episode. And it's something that I kind of enjoy watching play out because Sam does such a good job with it. And it's something that Jamie really has been struggling with for the better part of two seasons now is at what point do I switch sides and the repercussions of switching sides? Because there's this conversation that he has with Claire after the whole tar and feather incident when he says... It's like this giant blade dropped out of the heavens to cleave us apart. He was watching everyone at that gathering kind of just nod along and agree with everything that Flora said as she was like, no, we need to stick together and be united. What ails us today is a threat of division. If we have any hope of surviving, we need to remain together as part of Great Britain. And as he's watching every single person that he knows, pretty much, outside of the ridge, nodding along and agreeing and going, yeah, he can feel the separation growing. And it's breaking his heart. He hates it. He hates that he's going to have to be on a separate side from his kin and his family. But he knows that it has to happen. And I think that's part of the reason that he finds himself so reluctant to tell John what his true political leanings are, because he knows once he comes out with it, he and John really, their relationship will never be the same. It can't be. Because no matter how much he wishes that John would come to his side of things and try to understand, he can't. He's in too deep. John is the embodiment of the system as it is in Britain. He's a lord. His brother's a duke. Jamie's own son, John's stepson, is an earl. So it would bring such scandal to his name for John to even really be in association with Jamie at all once it gets out that Jamie is for liberty. So it's really just a cluster. And Jamie knows that. Jamie knows that he's putting John in an untenable position to see Jamie really struggle with that. I loved that they brought back John in this episode, honestly. Last season, I felt like John was kind of an ornamental piece and that he kind of just popped in and popped out in season five. And I honestly, as much as I love seeing John on the screen, I kind of wish that they hadn't included him so much because I want there to be a clear cut reason that John is on the screen. I want it to move the plot forward. I want it to build character. And I felt like he was just there for fluff for a lot of season five. This episode in season six was extremely critical. To how we understand John's character, how we understand Jamie's character, and how we understand the conflict between their two characters. It really builds on their relationship and sets us up very well for what we're gonna see in season seven. So I actually really loved the inclusion of John in this material for 605. A lot of John's plot in this episode is really him embodying the loyalist movement, or I don't know if you wanna call it a movement, but the loyalist cause, and he's working closely with Governor Josiah Martin, who is Governor Tryon's replacement. It actually makes sense that John would be kind of a council of sorts for Governor Martin because you'll have to remember John was a royal governor himself for Jamaica. So whenever Governor Martin needs advice, it would make sense that he would go to John because John is closely connected with Jamie. Jamie is an influential man. In North Carolina. He owns a lot of land. He's pretty wealthy. As far as North Carolinians are concerned, he definitely has more collateral and more wealth than most people in the mountains of North Carolina. He is a colonel in the militia and that's what concerns Governor Martin because he has enough power that he was able to raise a militia. So Governor Martin needs to know where his loyalties lie. He needs to know if he needs to be concerned with Jamie or not. And that's where Lord John comes in. And John, as always, is sticking his neck out for Jamie and saying, No, I know him. He's sworn an oath of loyalty to the crown. He's a man of his word. You have nothing to worry about. But I think deep down, after hearing Governor Martin read Jamie's letter of resignation and mentioning his personal convictions... And seeing the evidence that he mentions to Jamie later about a missive with a list of names connected to the Sons of Liberty, and that Jamie's name was on that list, there are a lot of things that aren't adding up for John. And as much as he wants to believe that Jamie is loyal to the crown, I think there's something deep down he knows that he's not willing to admit to himself that Jamie actually is for independency. And I think that Jamie has played his role extremely well in that. There are mixed signals. Nobody really knows what side he's on. And that's how Jamie wants it. He doesn't want to be one way or the other because that opens him up to a whole other set of problems. Tensions are getting high. He runs the risks of being hanged as a traitor if he says he's for independency too soon. He risks being tarred and feather and having his house burnt down if he's not traitorous enough. It's, these are the exact same fears that he has for Fergus. Trying to suss out where Jamie's at is a lot of John's story. In this episode and in the end when jamie finally is honest with john and reveals to him that he's joining the rebel cause and that he's going to join the sons of liberty it honestly breaks john's heart a little bit john feels a sense of betrayal over jamie's actions because like i said he stuck his neck out for jamie he swore to the governor that jamie was loyal And now that makes John look bad. And not only does it make him look bad, he's also now associated and claimed Jamie as a very close personal friend. So now John is inadvertently associated with the rebels, with the Sons of Liberty. Not only does it make John look like he's two-faced in protecting Jamie, but it also puts him at risk. And puts a stain on his family's reputation back in England because of his affiliations with the Frasers. So for John, this has pretty nasty political implications. And then on top of that, he feels a sense of betrayal because A, Jamie didn't tell him and led him to believe that everything was hunky dory. And also deep down, John is still in love with Jamie. Let's not forget this. As much as they are very good friends and they would do anything for each other, John is still very much in love with Jamie. And I think that I've said this before and that I feel like Jamie 100% takes advantage of John's feelings a lot of the time. And this final scene of them together in 605 is a perfect example of that because Jamie has literally just told John every single reason he could come up with for why John needs to drop him and move on. And then Jamie's like, oh, but can you delay this group of redcoats so that I can attend the Sons of Liberty meeting and not get caught? I'm like, Jesus Christ on a piece of toast. Jamie, this guy is literally the only thing that stands between you and getting caught. Like if he ever decided that he was done with you, you would be done. And now you're going to ask for a favor and John can't help but be angry. And he looks at Jamie and he says, that is a great deal to ask. And Jamie said, I know it is. So Jamie knows what he's asking. He's asking John to yet again stick his neck out for Jamie and protect him and offer him shelter a little bit. Ugh. Ugh. It just irritates me. I love John so much and I hate that he's in this position. So yeah, that really irritated me that Jamie's like, yeah, I know I'm asking a lot, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I know it puts you in a lot of danger and potentially my son by extension, but what do you say? (laughs) God. So when John at the end, as Jamie begins to walk away, says, be careful, that brought tears to my eyes because John's not just saying, be careful, don't get caught by these redcoats. I'm going to do what I can to delay them, but it may not be enough. He's not just saying, be careful about that. John is very aware of the fact that this may be the last time that he and Jamie see each other until the revolution is over. He's telling him to be careful, watch his back, don't get killed, basically. He knows how dangerous this situation is for Jamie. He's declared that he's going to fight if it turns into a war, basically, and John doesn't want anything to happen to Jamie. So that's what that means to me whenever John says, be careful. And the tears in David Berry's eyes are just like, oh, God, why are you so mean to John, Jamie? (laughs) Anyway, another moment that I actually kind of adored in my own little way and also made my heart twinge a little bit was when Claire and Jamie first show up to the Flora McDonald gathering and they meet Lord John. They're not expecting him to be there. And they're like, oh, Lord John, so good to see you. How's William? And John starts gushing about how wonderful William is. And he says, nearly as tall as me. And he bests me at chess almost every game. He talks of politics like a politician, of history like a historian. And his knowledge of literature in the modern languages, well, I hardly know where to begin. He's so proud of William. And Jamie, while hearing this, it like cuts to him as John's talking. And he looks down and kind of swallows and then looks up and puts this forced smile on his face. Like you can really see how painful it is for Jamie to think about missing his son growing up and developing into this fantastic young man. So I love that little moment. I'm glad that they cut to that. That was one choice in editing that I was like, oh, that was fantastic, because you really understand the two sides of this story. John's been given a son to dote on, and he absolutely adores him and loves him so much. And here's Jamie, who once again, isn't allowed to raise a child of his own. I think it's almost worse for Jamie in a lot of respects from when Brianna was born in the future, because he just kind of contemplated their life in the future. But here, Jamie is kind of forced to watch William grow from a distance. And I think that being forced to watch it but not be able to participate would almost be worse in a lot of respects. It's kind of a special type of torture. But I also like that we are getting mention of William as much as I feel like Lord John is just a conduit for us to keep up with what's going on with William. I like that we're keeping touch with him. We have our pulse on him because he's gonna come back into the story at some point and it's great to keep him kind of in the back of our minds in the viewer's conscious awareness so that when he does, Come back into the fold, everybody's not not like now. Who the hell is this? Oh, right, Jamie's illegitimate son. Gotcha. (laughs) He's always there, he's part of the story, and he is a strong motivating factor for a lot of our main characters. So, to kind of understand him and have a spatial awareness of where he is and his age, I think he's probably 16 17 at this point. So, he really is developing into a young man at this point. So, I'm excited to get there. Like later in this story, I'm excited to get there. And I know if you keep up with the show at all, they already announced his casting for season seven. And I'm just super excited to kind of see where that leads us. So yeah, the one final thing that I kind of wanted to touch on was Jacasta in this episode, because this is the first time that we've seen Jacasta since Myrta's semi pseudo funeral in Famous Last Words in season five. And then she kind of fell off the map. And it's been eight, nine episodes since we've seen her. So it's good to kind of touch base with her again and see where she's at. But she's still very much grieving for Myrta. It's kind of painful to watch because we got a lot of her history last season with her daughter Morna and how she lost her. But having that background information, we're also understanding her stance on things a little bit better than I think we would have without that information. Because Jacasta is a staunch loyalist. There's not anything that anybody could ever say to her to make her change her mind, because she's lost too much as a result of rebellions. In the Jacobite Rebellion, she lost all three of her daughters. In the Battle of Alamance and the Rebellion with the Regulators, she lost Myrta. There's really nothing that's going to change her mind. She would pour her heart, soul, and her last penny into supporting the loyalist cause. When... The argument between Jamie and Jacasta finally comes to a head when they're eating dinner and he brings up Fergus, which has been a thorn in the side of Jamie for this whole episode. And finally he breaks loose with it. You know, he blames her for sending Fergus away after the whole print shop incident and seeing how the Sons of Liberty and their supporters attacked Fogarty Sims's print shop for printing pamphlets that Jacasta asked for for the Flora McDonald banquet it or dinner or what have you after jamie sees that it really just embodies every single fear that he has for fergus as a printer in Edinburgh, he himself walked the political tightrope. He printed things that were not in line with the crown, things that could definitely get him in trouble. He printed those kinds of things. And so Fergus worked with him closely whenever Jamie was in Edinburgh, and he knows how to kind of weave in and out and live in the shadows and be able to print things and work his way around getting caught. And I think that that kind of mental stimulation really made Fergus feel useful and like he was doing something. So Fergus yearns for that kind of feeling again in his life. And Jacasta knows that. But Jacasta also knows that she could use somebody in her corner to print loyalist material. So she's like, hey, Fergus, I got some money to burn. I'll buy you a print shop. Jamie understands that that purchase most likely came with strings. And seeing her paying this printer to print the Flora McDonald pamphlets pretty much confirmed that for him. And so now he's even more angry with her than he was because as angry as he was with her for putting Fergus in a position where he could potentially be in danger, he's going to have to walk the line like Jamie has had to do where... If he's treasonous too soon, it could get him hung. If he's not treasonous enough, it could get him tarred and feathered. Jamie's very aware of the danger of this. And he's also very aware of the fact that if Fergus prints Jacasta's loyalist material, he's going to put himself in a position where when the winning side comes in, when it's all said and done, he's going to be viewed as someone that was on the loyalist side of things. And that's not going to go well for anybody. And so Jamie's very, very, very concerned for Fergus's safety. I think this is one of the episodes where we have seen him be the most fatherly and show the most parental concern. And I really liked seeing that side of Jamie, it's that he's dealing with his own personal issues and declaring himself for liberty but he's also extremely concerned about how Fergus is going to handle these things as well. I liked that. But one thing that really struck me about Jacasta's actions is that in season four, when Jacasta and Myrta were first kind of getting acquainted with each other again, he mentioned to Jacasta that she would have influence in her own circles and that she should use that influence to her advantage to spread her political cause. And she was very against that. She says, I've grown old. That's I'm out of that game. Like I'm not going to go there again. But Myrta believed in action and that action got him killed and Jocasta seeing that that tendency towards rebelliousness was not something that she ever wanted to lose somebody over again and so she agreed to not rest on her laurels and take action and that's what she's doing by supporting Flora's dinner and buying Fergus's print shop. She's getting involved because she can't stand to lose another person. And I love that whenever Jamie's voicing his concerns, she says, I understand your concerns. And he says, I understand your grief. Like, I see through you. I know this isn't just about Fergus's happiness. I know this isn't about protecting his family because I know how dangerous this is. You have other motivations and let's not pretend that you don't. So that was honestly a very good scene for me. I think Maria Doyle Kennedy's fantastic. Obviously Sam Hewan's fantastic. So whenever they have these scenes where they butt heads as characters and kind of go at it, I think that they shine. One thing that I did want to mention before I get to wrapping up this episode, was the title card, because I totally forgot to talk about it, is the join or die flag, which is actually a legitimate thing. And whenever I was in Massachusetts back in the springtime, I actually saw one of those and I was like, hey, I've seen one of those now. It's pretty cool. And then also, the ending of this episode. Massive future Easter egg, if you want to call it that, when Claire hears someone whistling in the wind the Colonel Bogey March. As viewers were like, oh, where have I heard that? And it was actually composed in 1914 and featured in the movie The Bridge on the Quai. It was. Released in 1957. So something that Claire would very much be familiar with that tune. It's very catchy. You know, I think since it kind of stopped after that, those first few notes, she was like, oh, maybe I imagined it. And then we flashed to the jail with Donner standing in the jail, whistling the song and holding the gemstone. And while I thought that that was a fantastic ending to an episode, I felt like it was kind of an empty ending because we didn't get the payoff to it. And I think that it might have held a little bit more weight and been a little bit better as an ending if we hadn't had season six cut short. So I won't talk too much about that because I don't want to spoil anything. I definitely think we'll get answers to all of that stuff in season seven. But I was a little sad that we didn't kind of get anything on it in season six. I know logistically we just couldn't, but you can definitely tell with the way that some of this stuff is formatted that it was written to be a longer season and then it got cut. So I'll leave that there. So that wraps up my analysis of 605 Give Me Liberty. Quote of the episode was a Jamie quote where he says, I can't one day I'd have to stand against a great many of them, friends and kin. To hear Flora McDonald's words fall upon the crowd today, to see the resolve grow in them, it was as if a great blade had come down from heaven to cleave us apart. I felt like so many people were dealing with that kind of thing in the American Revolution. So it does make me a little sad for him. And also to know that that's just choices that people had to make. Like I can't imagine having to make a decision that completely separated me politically, emotionally from my family. And I know that's probably how Jamie feels too. It's got to be so tough for him. Performance of the episode for me was David Barry. I thought that he was fan-freaking-tastic this episode. Of course, I love seeing him as Lord John. And I think I said in season five, anytime Lord John comes on, it's hard for me to not just hand over performance of the episode to him. Because I do feel like he's a really great character. I'm sure that the writers have such fun writing him. His nuanced acting, like his facial expressions. And I'll tell you what sold it for me. When he's sitting in the chair across from Governor Martin when he's reading Jamie's letter. And John is listening to Martin read the letter and listening to Jamie's words. And he's so zoned out and he's, you can just see on his face, he's like, oh. Jamie, Jamie. And he knows that he's going to have to straight up lie to this guy to protect Jamie. And then to see that come all the way through to the end of the episode where his worst suspicions have been confirmed. It's all he can do to not burst into tears because he's so worried about his best friend and the man that he loves. So seeing all of that, on his face and in his body language. I mean, yeah, the emotion he puts behind his words is great, but it's the whole shebang that makes him so fantastic for me. So performance of the episode goes to David Barry. All right, that wraps up my thoughts on this episode. But as always, I sent it out to you guys to let me know what you thought on 605 Give Me Liberty. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Joan Cohen says, I loved the cold open with Bonnie Prince Charlie and Flora MacDonald. So much tension, even though I knew what was going to happen. The music was perfect, and I got a good laugh out of Charlie saying, Mark me, and fussing about his bonnet. Flora MacDonald's role in assisting the prince, yet later advocating for the crown, is a good tie-in to show how loyalties can shift. Poor Lord John. He wears his heart on his sleeve. His anguish over Jamie's change of allegiance is so palpable. I almost wish Jamie could have revealed that what he knows about the future to alleviate his fears. Not that John would have believed it, but still. I want to slap Roger upside the head sometimes. He's still so clueless about the optics of his behavior around young mothers. You would think he would have learned by now. He's lucky that he didn't get the full impact of Bree Fraser's temper. The only thing I didn't care for was Jacasta buying the print shop for Fergus. I get that the writers were trying to come up with a way to streamline the story, but it felt awkward and undermines Jamie and Fergus's relationship. Yeah, I really loved Bonnie Prince Charlie. Like, Andrew Gower really just slammed back into that role and didn't even stumble, man. Like, the pettiness and entitled feeling that we get rolling off of him. Like, how do you stand these cursed corsets and this bonnet? And oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> And Fleur turns around and is like, um, I think it's a small price to pay for not being prisoner. And he's like, okay, yeah, maybe you're right. And as far as Jacasta buying Fergus the print shop, I don't know. I didn't feel like it was as clumsy as some people thought it was, but I can understand what you're saying. Like, it's definitely not as much of a drawn out experience as it is in the books. And I don't know. I felt like it worked because, like I said, there's that connection with Murta's call to action two seasons ago. And after losing Myrta, Jacastas finally realized that she can't, you know, sit on her hands anymore. She has to act one way or the other. So I felt like it was good to kind of see her have some action to pull in Jamie's fatherly side. I don't really think that it undermined Jamie and Fergus's relationship at all. We know that. Jamie is very protective of Fergus and wants what's best for him. And after Fergus's attempt to take his own life, Jamie's obviously concerned about him as well. I think the difficulty lies in Fergus making a choice for himself. Fergus didn't have to tell Jocasta yes. And I'm sure that Jamie definitely had conversations with Fergus about is this the right thing to do, you know. And in the books. Jamie does understand how dangerous a position that Fergus is in. So I think if anything, what the decision for Jacasta to purchase the print shop adds is a tension between Jacasta and Jamie that we haven't previously seen in the show, but is definitely in the books for different reasons. Because Jamie definitely gets pissed at Jacasta a lot for how much she intervenes in things that aren't her business. And she definitely has a devious quality that is very on par with her Mackenzie siblings. So I don't know. I don't think any of it felt uncharacteristic of their characters. I don't think that anything felt too stretched, I guess, in my opinion. Regina Geisert says, Love the opening, minus Bonnie Prince Charlie saying, Mark me. But it wouldn't be Bonnie Prince Charlie without it, lol. Roger has such a good heart and good intentions, but is a bit dense in how it appears to others who are outside of the situation. He's lucky that Bree didn't get full bullheaded Fraser on him. I was so pained by Lord John Gray's reaction to hearing Jamie's stance, it made me wish he could have been told the truth about it all. Overall, a fantastic episode. Yes, I really, really wish that Jamie would have just told him the truth. And like you guys said, no... John would not have believed Jamie, but I really wish that John would believe Jamie so that Jamie could come clean about it, you know? Like, hey, I'm not doing this to hurt you. I'm doing this because it's gonna set me and my family up for success in the future. The rebels are going to win and beat the British. And I know you don't think it's possible. Like even John says, he said, the idea that the colonies could govern themselves is inconceivable and incomprehensible. It's just not going to happen. And that was the stance of most british people and even diana Gabaldon has said that you know the only reason the americans won the revolution was because the british gave up and went home if they had stuck it out another year the british probably would have won but they were tired of fighting so i don't know i mean it's definitely something to ponder but yeah i really just wish that they could come clean with john and that john would believe them because that would simplify everything right but then there wouldn't be the drama that we love about Outlander. The final comment of the night is from Sandy Viglione Corsi. She says, I'm happy Jamie came clean with Lord John, but that poor guy can't hide his feelings for Jamie. But I was glad he said that he would stall the redcoats as best as he can do. If only Jamie would tell him the truth. As far as Roger, he's just an airhead when it comes to helping young mothers. But it was a little surprised that Bree didn't go big red on him, would have served him right, even though his intentions were good. Oh, man. So everybody thinks that he's lucky that Brie didn't go off on him. That's funny. I'm glad that she didn't. But like I said, I don't think that that would have served the purpose of the show. I think that Brie has gotten a reputation of just being a bitch and not being able to control her temper. And I think that she's shown immense growth over the course of season six. And I really appreciate that about the writing because honestly, like I said before, I was getting a little fed up with it. I don't know. I disagree with you guys. I do understand. Like, I get it. And I think that Roger, yes, can be dense about how his actions appear to other people. But I do think that his eyes were opened over the course of this episode. At least I'm hoping so. Because, I mean, in the end, he did sort things out with Amy and find somebody else to take care of her etc etc so i do think that he realized that brie wasn't just making stuff up and that yeah this is actually a problem and i need need to fix it before it gets any worse well that wraps up this episode as far as outlander news over the course of the last couple of weeks they are off of hiatus and are back to filming so yay season seven is continuing on Stars released a little ditty with Joey Phil and Izzy Meikle-Small. They play Denny and Rachel Hunter, who are going to be key characters over the course of season seven. So if you would like to check that out, I shared it on my main page for the Sassanac Files. And they look so adorable and I'm so excited to see them progress as characters. Also just recently announced that Diana's short story Besieged is going to be in independent paperback and ebook releasing October 18th. So if you haven't had a chance to read Besieged yet, you can get it as an independent book. Although honestly, and this is just my opinion, you can do with it what you will. I don't think it's worth it to just buy it as an independent piece. It is part of her compilation of stories in Seven Stones to Stand or Fall. A lot of other good stuff is in that book. So I would just, if you have an Audible credit or you have Kindle Unlimited or whatever it is, just get Seven Stones to Stand or Fall. There are seven fantastic short stories and novellas in there and they're really great. It gives you some background information on a lot of our characters' and storylines that we're gonna be seeing in season seven and if we get season eight. So I really recommend reading those books. They're really great. Also announced that Sam Hewen, David Barry, and Duncan Lacroix are all going to be appearing at New York Comic-Con. That is the weekend of October 6th, through the 9th, and they're going to be there on Saturday and Sunday. If you buy a digital ticket, you'll also be able to access their trio panel on Sunday morning. Sam is doing a meet and greet and individual panel on Saturday night, but that is a ticketed event, so you have to buy an extra pass on top of your Saturday ticket for New York Comic Con. Diana Gabaldon is also going to be at New York Comic Con signing copies of her books. So if you don't have an autographed copy of a book and you would like one, I'm not sure if it's a ticketed event or if she's just going to be there in the like autograph booths, and you can go whenever. I'm not really sure how New York Comic Con works. So forgive me on that. But I do know that she's going to be there and that she's going to be signing copies of her books. I think that wraps up all of the new Outlander news. So I'm going to get off of here for this week. Make sure to join me next week for my analysis on season six, episode six, The World Turned Upside Down, which is a... Hum dinger. Let me tell you, I'm excited to talk about it, but it is a lot to process. So hopefully we can get through it all in a limited amount of time. Also, um, if you have been following me through Droughtlander Book Club, I have just posted the events in my private group TSF of Sasnacks where I'll be hosting the live. For my third and fourth editions of Droughtlander Book Club, on The Sapphire Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. Those will be October 22nd and October 29th. I'm splitting the discussion in half because this is a massive book and I want to make sure that I cover everything in a couple of shorter lives versus having one four-hour live, which I have a feeling is what would happen. So rather than asking you guys to take four hours out of one day, maybe take two hours out of two days, but I'm doing them a week apart. So if you guys want to Start reading the Sapphire Brooch and participate. You can join my private group TSF Obsasnaks on Facebook, just make sure to fill out all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules. And then you can say that you're following my event once your request gets accepted and you should get all my notifications. I like to post some history stuff. As I say, I like to go down the rabbit hole when I'm reading or watching a new show that has historical content so that I can really get a feel for the setting. These books are no exception. So if you like historical romance and you like to read and you like the Sassnack Files, you should come join us for Droughtlander Book Club. Alrighty, I'm signing off and you guys have a fantastic week. I'll chat at you next week and you stay safe out there. Bye.